Don't forget to grab your ticket for the next live edition of this podcast. On Monday, the 16th of May at 7pm, I'll be joined by Joanna Williams to celebrate the publication of her brilliant new book, How Woke Won. And you can be there too. Tickets cost just £5 and are now on sale to everyone. You can book yours by going to spiked-online.com slash events. Or if you're a Spike supporter, you can sign up for free. Just go to the Spike website, log into the supporters hub, and you can register with one click. If you're not yet a Spike supporter, why not sign up today and claim your ticket to this event? Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters. Anybody who begins a sentence... As a, you know, lesbian, black woman, in my case, middle-class wanker, anybody who starts the sentence that way, I am immediately suspicious. Because what I think they're doing is they're trying to justify what they say on the basis of who they are. And I don't think that works. What you say is what you say. What you, How you behave is how you behave. Who you are is a separate question. That's part of the danger. It's not just to women's rights. It's to this notion of collective struggle and real solidarity which is discovering the power of difference, if you like, rather than discovering simply your own self-determination. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Simon Fanshawe. Simon is a writer, broadcaster and diversity consultant. He started out as a comedian in the 1980s, winning the prestigious Perrier Comedy Award in Edinburgh in 1989. He has had a long career in TV, both as a presenter and as a documentary maker. He has written for numerous publications, including The Guardian, The Sunday Times and Time Out. And he is the author, most recently, of The Power of Difference, where the complexities of diversity and inclusion meet practical solutions. Simon was one of the founders of the gay rights charity Stonewall, though it's fair to say he has not seen eye to eye with Stonewall over the past couple of years. So I think probably the best place to start is with Stonewall. You were a co-founder of Stonewall. You view Stonewall, as do many, many people, as an organization that played an incredibly important role in securing rights and dignity for gay men and gay women. But it's fair to say you've not seen eye to eye with Stonewall over the past few years, particularly on the issue of gender identity and gender ideology. So to kick off and to to get listeners to understand where you're coming from, could you just start by saying, what was the first time you got an inkling that maybe Stonewall was going in a problematic direction and and was not living up to the ideas that it set itself when you and others founded it? I think probably when one of the chief executives, um, Ben Summerskill, left, and they were in the business of appointing somebody new, and a couple of people I knew, three people I knew actually, phoned up and said, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, what do you think? What's the direction? (laughs) And the key thing about that is that Stonewall had had astonishing success culminating in equal marriage. And so with a few exceptions, small exceptions, and obviously there was the question of of, of civil partnerships and marriage in Northern Ireland, but with those exceptions, the, the legislative agenda had been done, really. 
So that's the moment at which the organization had to have a strategic pivot. It had to say, well, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. And it was interesting with all three of those people, when I asked them what they thought should happen, they all said the same thing. And it happened to chime with what I thought should happen, which was that having built the kind of broad alliances nationally that had achieved the legislative change, the obvious thing to do was then to devolve was to go locally and regionally and within cities and towns and in the in the countryside as well, build up similar alliances so that you could start to tackle the sort of non-legislative, the more policy-based or often protest-based or whatever. And the classic example would have been what happened in the schools in Birmingham with the um, No Outsiders training program. You know, elements of which are fine, elements of which I think are quite contentious. That's not really my point. My point is that what you effectively had there was an absolute schism between I mean, interestingly, a bunch of white middle-class teachers and a bunch of working-class Muslim mm. parents, which is kind of a, an element that wasn't very much commented on. But the point being is that actually there was a conversation to have there because what the parents were actually protesting about was they were feeling that their control over their kids' education was being taken away from them. There was a real dialogue. We there could, And funny enough, shortly after it blew up, I was at a conference talking and I happened to sit at lunch next door to somebody, a woman a black woman, a black Muslim woman, who happened to be a governor at a school in Manchester where there were huge numbers of Muslim kids. And actually they had completely no issue. But the whole issue of sexual orientation and um, sort of uh, relationship education so on and so forth, was absolutely fine because they'd built a very good relationship with the parents and the parents felt confident. So that was the moment at which I felt that this is a strategic pivot and the obvious thing to do is to change the nature of what's happening. And then when it didn't, I thought, actually, I'm not sure that's the right choice. The second thing is my argument with Stonewall is not really about what they campaign on. That's up to them. My argument is about the way in which they've gone about it. Because the real success of Stonewall was built by putting together the broadest alliances around questions of principle, essentially around questions of fairness and equal treatment under the law. What it didn't do was seek to impose a view on people. It sought to find common cause. And that style was important because that's the style that gained real support amongst gay people's families and friends and colleagues because it didn't alienate them, it embraced them. So I have those kind of two things really. Wrong strategic decision, I think. And secondly, to dispense with and and I think in a way betray the legacy of the style of campaigning, which is so successful. And you can see it since 2015. I mean, to be honest, what has Stonewall managed to achieve? So Simon, I want to come back to the issue you raised there about how Stonewall operates and how uh, how its activism uh, takes place these days, because I think that's incredibly important. But I want to just ask you a couple more questions about your opinion on what it uh, campaigns on these days. So I think it's pretty fair to say that Stonewall focuses a large to a large degree on the trans issue and issues of gender identity and gender equality and gender expression which is pretty different from what it used to talk about. So it used to talk about sexual orientation and the rights of same-sex attracted people to equality in society, non-discrimination, freedom from violence, and so on. So uh, 
I guess I want to ask you how you understand the difference between people who are same-sex attracted and people who have gender issues in terms of how they express their agenda, because they are often lumped together under the banner of LGBTQIAA, but they're quite different things, aren't they? I think they are. I mean, I, I always say that one of the things about that ridiculous acronym is that it's turned a passion of my life into something uh, uh, you know, the lesbian and gay equality and into a slightly secure password on the internet. <laughs> um, it, that group does, I don't understand how people think that group has a kind of coherence because I think that what Stonewall is about is about this, is about countering discrimination. It is about uh, creating circumstances in which uh, the people on whose behalf it campaigns can live lives that are their own lives and that are free of discrimination and therefore in which they can find their own freedom. And one of the things about that is that when um, campaigns have success, um, they do it in order to create or, or unleash the diversity that's within that group of people. There's a curious uh, phenomenon, really, which is that when you start to campaign, you sort of put aside political differences in the interests of focusing on that, that, that the injury, the injustice, the insult to your human rights, if you like, and the inequality that you're trying to deal with. Once you start to get that, then actually those political differences, the coherence of that community starts to diminish. Mm. You can see, I mean, the famous example is the, is, is the, um, the Pankhurst and the suffragette movement. I mean, the four Pankhursts, when they got that sort of first partial victory for property-owning women over a certain age, um, one of them became a conservative MP, one became religious, one became a fascist, one was an atheist and a communist. Now, you know, they didn't stop having a passionate commitment for all of their lives to women's suffrage, but their political beliefs were absolutely divergent. So what, what I find is that there is little that gay people have in common in a way. Why mm. would we, mm. apart from that sense of discrimination and sharing that? And there was an interesting conference um, in 2020 called Hashtag BAME Over. And it was a group of largely younger um, black, Asian, uh, African, Caribbean, blah, 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 origin people saying precisely that, saying, look, don't reduce this to an acronym. They said, we are diasporas. We come from Asia and South Asia and East Asia. We come from Africa. We come from Latin America. We come from the Caribbean. We come from the world. And we are all different by parentage, by family, by religion. The one thing that we all do is experience racism. And I think that rather beautifully expresses what the focus of that campaigning should be. What I find curious, I suppose, about the gender ideology campaign is that I don't know seriously what their demands are. Mm. I mean, if you sat down and said, what do you actually want? Fine. If what you want is a reform of the Gender Recognition Act and what you want in that is self-ID, in other words, you can determine whether yourself by your own say so, whether you're a man or a woman. If that's what they want, fine. But actually, in any legislation or any policy, then have to say, well, that has implications. And you have to work through those. You have to convince other people that that's actually a good thing. Whereas what seems to be going on is that the campaign essentially is to try and change other people's definition of their lives. Yeah. In other words, there seems to be this idea that what, what the campaign is about is telling women that actually the group they thought they belonged to, adult human females, turns out to be a much bigger group, which has actually got a whole lot of people originally born men in it. Now, if that's what you want to do, you mean to be pretty 
pretty clear about it. But I don't see that as a as a political demand in the tradition of Stonewall and tackling discrimination. I see that as a kind of, it's a revolutionary view, fine, but it also is not a view that's shared by the vast range of those lesbians and gays and trans people who were originally involved in Stonewall. So you've got to kind of make up your mind whether you're the representative group of the lesbians, gays and trans, or whether actually you're a much narrower ideological campaign that has other views. And one way or another, you've got to make that decision. And I have actually been told by the previous chair of Stonewall that I had put myself outside Stonewall, which sounds to me like pretty clearly, whether it was me or somebody else that put themselves outside Stonewall, Stonewall had made a decision that they were the right kind of wrong kind of gay. That's a different organisation from the one I thought that it was. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's start off talking about women to begin with. Two men talking about women. That's all. That's what the world needs right now. <laughs> but in relation to a point you've just made there, and one of the things that I think is very important about this discussion, which tends to get slightly poo-pooed by some of the activists, which is the question of what impact the gender ideology or the new ideas that Stonewall and others have taken on board, which is that sex can be changed, that you have to respect a person's declaration of his or her sex, whatever they want it to be. You have to use the right pronouns and so on. Uh, There's very little consideration given sometimes to the impact that that can have on already established rights that have been hard won by certain communities. So if you look at, for example, as you say, uh, women, women have spent the past century campaigning very hard for their right to vote, for their right to work, for their right to associate freely, for their right to certain medical procedures that will guarantee their equality to men, abortion rights, and so on. And it seems to me pretty clear cut that if you suddenly say, well, men can be women too if they want to, and therefore they can enter women-only spaces, they can add themselves to women-only shortlists, they can go into domestic violence refuges, it seems pretty straightforward to me that that does undercut a lot of the stuff that women have been campaigning for for a long time. So do you see one of the problems with this new way of thinking is that it actually interferes with what we once considered to be progressive values and ideas, prime among them, the idea that women should be equal to men and should have their own rights where they need them. I mean, broadly speaking, I think I, I, do, I do think that. What I would say is that I think that um, this idea of self-ID is a curious one. It's an idea that you can literally create your own reality. And this seems to me to be something that's happening across politics. I mean, that's kind of the ultimate alternative fact, isn't it? Mm. It's absolutely explaining the world purely through a subjective experience of the world. And I think one of the things that's so tragic about that is that actually that chips away, in fact, tries to obliterate the notion of collective happiness and collective good. And I think one of the problems for politics at the moment is that that combination of hyper-individualism in the market, the idea that in the market you can choose, you know, you choose Calvin Klein underwear, and this is supposed to speak to your own individual style, when in fact it speaks to the individual style of 
14 million other people who've chosen <laughs> Calvin Klein underwear. So you've got this peculiar idea that somehow buying choice in the market is somehow an individual uh, identity. It, it's a test of your identity. It's where you build up your identity. So I think that's going on. And then there's, it's, it's, I think politics has been sort of washed through therapy. So, you know, happiness is not seen as a collective good. It's seen as an individual good. Everybody talks about well-being, the whole individual well-being the whole time, their own self-fulfillment and all these kind of things. So I think those have conspired to create this kind of slightly peculiar thing, which I call the as a generation. So anybody who begins a sentence as a, you know, lesbian, black woman, in my case, middle-class wanker, anybody who starts the sentence that way, I am immediately suspicious. Because what I think they're doing is they're trying to justify what they say on the basis of who they are. And I don't think that works. What you say is what you say. What you, How you behave is how you behave. Who you are is a separate question. So what I'm saying is that I think that's part of the danger. It's not just to women's rights. It's to this notion of collective struggle and real solidarity, which is discovering the power of difference, if you like, rather than discovering simply your own self-determination. So when you take that into the context of women's rights, I think one has to say, look, there are three broad things that one needs to think about here. Firstly, biology. There's no evidence to suggest that biology itself, that you can change sex. I mean, there is all sorts of data to show us that sex is binary. It's based around the reproductive system. There are people who are into sex. And a friend of mine, I went out, somebody I went out with actually once who's got one and a half legs, always says to me the fact that he was born with one and a half legs. He says, the fact that I was born with one and a half legs, he says, doesn't mean the human race is not bipedal. Yeah. You know, of course there are <laughs> exceptions, but you know, biology is binary. So let's, let's accept that. You can't physically change sex. We know that. But what we then have to think about is if people want through the GRA or through whatever mechanism they want to be treated as, that has implications for sport and spaces and yeah. services. Now, when you look at sport, it doesn't have implications for equestrian sport, but it does have implications for swimming. So I'm afraid I'm boringly detailed in this. I want people to deal with the practical realities because what they talk about is trans-exclusionary when you talk about not letting Liam swim on the women's team. They say you're excluding this trans person. Well, I say no, this trans person is excluding the yeah. person who would have been on number three at the podium because they've bumped them down one. So yes, there's an obvious implication. And I don't understand why people can't see that there is an obvious implication to this. And it's no good just shouting trans women are women. There are obvious material, real implications for this, and we have to deal with them. And the thing that's depressing about, I think, that sort of ideology is that those people are not prepared to encounter the reality. So they're not prepared to understand that actually in all situations, in any relationship, even a romantic relationship, that is about understanding what the other person wants and trying to say what you want, and then actually finding a way together to go forward to something you both might want, you know? And I, I, I really don't know. I really, really, really don't know why people can't actually see that and just want to have a good old shout about it. Because the thing about this stuff is that, and I do go back to this the whole time, is that I think that Stonewall is a, I think it's a symptom of something that's happening in politics. I mean, yeah. if you look at the debates and arguments around Black Lives Matters, of course everybody thinks Black Lives Matters. Everybody thinks something ought to be focused on there and dealt with. Of course racism should be tackled. I mean, there's no one who disagrees with that, I hope. 
But but actually, if you go under Black Lives Matters and, and, and you go into what they theoretically believe, there is this notion that race describes all disparities between yeah. black and white people. Now, that may or may not be the case. The point is, it's a view, it's not the view. Yeah. And I find that in, in, you know, I work in diversity the whole time. And when I stand up in front of 150 HR directors, as I did on Thursday, and I say to them, look, this is not something we can simply impose by diktat and impose a single view. And we've got to understand that there's the difference in views that gives the richness and the beauty to it. They all go, oh, thank God, somebody finally said that. <laughs> so my point is a bigger one, really. I mean, I just think Stonewall's a damaging symbol of what's happening in politics across the piece. It's, it's, it is this, this notion that that disagreement is enmity yeah. and disagreement is hostility. That's the fundamental problem. You know, I, I work with somebody at the moment who's hilarious. He says he's the only person he knows who voted both for Trump and Brexit. <laughs> Actually, I love him. I think he's terrific. I disagree with him frantically about practically every political thing he thinks, but I don't think in terms of our values in life. Mm our ability to get on and collaborate. We're doing a project together, you know? That is one of the extraordinary things, as you say, not just about how Stonewall has, has responded to critical comments made by you and other people too, but also the broader political culture we find ourselves in, which is there is a great deal of intolerance at the moment. And you often have a situation where someone will make a very sensible uh, point at criticising an organisation or criticising an idea, they will instant be, instantly be written off as a bigot or as a mm. transphobe or some other form of phobe. I mean, you only have to look at what happened to someone like Alison Bailey, and it's still happening to Alison Bailey, or J.K. Rowling, or um, other people who, who raise these comments. They will often be instantly written off as problematic, worthy of cancellation, get them out of our universities, get them out of our public spaces. And in relation to what I find quite curious about that in relation to Stonewall in particular, and in relation to the issue of, of gay rights and, and gay liberation, is that that is also a bit of a turnaround from what these movements were like in the 1960s and the 70s and the 80s, which is that they were often at the cutting edge of arguing for greater forms of free discussion, uh, often countercultural freedom, the right to publish certain things, the right of Derek Jarman to make certain films, the right of people to gather in public and say, I'm a homosexual and that's fine. So it was, a, it was in large part about the freedom to express ideas, even if the moral majority of society at that time thought that those ideas were horrible or, or problematic or, or disgusting or, or whatever else they might have said. So it, how do you think that has come about too, where you've had this shift among, among campaigners who relied on freedom of expression to guarantee their own liberty, where they now see freedom of expression itself as being a problem and, and debate as something that's quite destructive? It is a very, it is a very beguiling question, <laughs> a very good question. One of the things that's interesting about the history of gay rights, in Britain at least, is that the advances have always been made without arguing uh, or asking people to agree with the virtue or morality of homosexuality. In other words, they've always appealed to this idea that there's a group of people who, in our view, were unfairly treated, that were just treated in a discriminatory way in relation to the law. 
And you can see the success of that. So if you look at the civil partnership campaign, so in 2003, you know, Stonewall asked the gays what we wanted, and obviously more musical theatre. But <laughs> apart from that, um, what we wanted was things that would flow from our relationships were they, you know, established by law. Classically, visiting your partner in hospital and having access to their doctor, their medical records, uh, inheritance, pensions, tenancies, you know, all that bread and butter stuff that heterosexual couples took for granted when they got married. So we looked around and we thought, well, we could go for marriage, but actually the government, whilst it, it, you know, supportive of change, was nonetheless nervous about doing anything to do with marriage. And that's because the second reason, which is that the church thinks, churches think they own marriage. I mean, they don't, but they think they do. So we would have had huge problems in the Commons and the Lords with any legislation. And thirdly, and possibly most importantly, was that lesbians thought marriage was an instrument of patriarchy and they didn't <laughs> want the gays volunteering. So the combination of that meant there was no alliance to put together at that point around marriage. So what Angela Mason, the brilliant Angela Mason, uh, did was looked abroad. And in Holland and France, they had sort of weaker civil partnerships. So she took those and legislation was drafted, a, a draft bill. And it was almost it was almost unanimously embraced by people because if you walk down any high street in Britain and went, do you know what? If you're gay and your partner's in hospital, you don't have any access to the doctor, their medical health records, you can't find out how they are and you can't visit them half the time and no one will tell you anything. People go, what? You must be kidding. And they go, no, that's the situation. So, of course, people thought it was the right thing to do. Of course they did, you know. But they didn't have to approve of homosexuality to do it. They had to just approve of the, the reality of relationships. Now, that's the style of So then we, you know, civil partnerships, but of course everybody called them weddings. So that's about how you approach politics. But if you're, if my sexual orientation defines me, and if I've made that my subjective truth, and rather than it being a material reality, it's just a thing that is, it becomes my subjective truth, then the idea of disagreeing with that yeah. becomes more than a disagreement. It becomes an attack on me because I've defined who I am and I've done it in a way that's supposed to stop you having any kind of handle on it. Now, not only do I think that's not right, I mean, I don't understand how you can just define your world, your world through language. I mean, you can't just say it is and it will be. I, I mean, you just can't. You can't make things happen. Has anybody tried to make somebody do something? You either have to use coercion, <laughs> money, <laughs> the relationship you have with it. I mean, you can't just make things happen by saying things. So I think part of the problem is this subjectivity. It's, people are so bound up with yeah. this notion of their identity and their wellness and their individuality that actually when you do disagree with them it does become an attack on them but they've it seems to me that they've got to find some solidarity with people you know rather than than expecting people just to bend to their will yeah i think that's right and i think that's one of the reasons why you hear the word erasure these days not not the pop band, but the the idea that Andy Bell, a voice sent yeah. from heaven. <laughs> but the but you know the idea that criticism is a form of erasure, and you hear discussion about um, microaggressions. And I, I, I've given talks on campuses where I've been accused of hurting people and erasing people simply by expressing certain ideas in <laughs> in normally a very polite way. But I think that's but there's right. a very interesting there's a very interesting phrase, isn't there, which is um, feel unsafe. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the thing is, so I'm chairman of a housing association, okay? And we have thousands of homes. Well, we don't, them, 
we manage thousands of people's homes. And we are under an absolute obligation to ensure that they are safe. I would be completely denying my responsibility and my integrity if all I worried about was whether they felt safe. Yeah. I actually need to make sure that our board and our exec and our, and our staff really do make them actually safe and that if there was a fire, they would not die. Yeah. And so there's a material difference between being unsafe and feeling unsafe, you know, and you need to know that you are safe. That's different. You know, I feel unsafe. Well, boo-hoo. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Boo-hoo. I mean, I feel frightened and unsafe too sometimes. Well, yeah, that's life. That you is know, life. That is human relationships, I'm afraid. And I don't want to sound sort of like some, you know, hoary old adult going, look, young, young person. But I mean it. It's a ridiculous thing to say, I think. And very often it's said by the kind of people who actually live incredibly privileged, comfortable lives in comparison with huge sections of the population who aren't at Oxford University, who aren't getting one of the best educations in the world and who don't have middle-class parents. So I'm, I'm very interested in that divide too. But I, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is, and maybe this, this will put you on the spot a bit, but I think we, we agree that there is a difference between people who are same-sex attracted, and then the new additions to the alphabet, gender ideologies and people who have gender dysphoria or so on. There are a difference between those people's experiences. But I, what I want to ask you, it, it, does it go further than that? And is it possible that there are aspects of the new gender way of thinking that actually undercut the rights that same-sex people have argued for? Because one of the things that quite a few people have pointed out is you know, lesbians in particular sometimes get a lot of flack from transgender activists for refusing to sleep with people who have penises or wanting people who have penises off their dating apps, out of their social circles, out of the uh, pool of people from which they might have sexual relations. And that is often referred to as disgusting and horrible and What's wrong with these lesbians? Why are they so obsessed with genitals? The kind of thing that you might have seen in the Sun newspaper in the 1980s, you know, weirdo lesbians. So is there a possibility that some of these gender ideologies are rehabilitating homophobia in a new way under the guise of politically correct language, but actually is quite damaging to the idea that there is something specific about same-sex attraction? So I think there are these three things, there's biology, there's policy and law, and then there's social recognition. So when it comes to social recognition, you know, trans people that I know, you know, it doesn't occur to me particularly whether or not to call trans women she, or I mean, it wouldn't, I mean, you know, I've got several friends and it wouldn't occur to me not to call them she, just because why wouldn't you? You know, that's, that's, that seems to me to be kind of completely sensible. When it comes to the spaces, it's really interesting asking some of them would you go to a women's conference? Would you, you know, go to these kinds? Of things? And these, the people I'm talking about here are people who have transitioned. Mm. So let's let's also say there is a difference here, I think, between people who have transitioned and people who haven't. And yeah. that is a discussion that people are not prepared to have. If you look at all the polling, all the all the UK polling, it's really clear that people want, British people want to be nice to people. They want to be kind to people. They want people to have a decent life. So yes, of course, they support trans people's identity. They want them support to healthcare and so on and so forth. 
the minute you say, if you look at the polling, and then somebody comes into a women's space and they are still physically male, people go, well, I draw the line at that. Yeah. You know, and it's really, really clear in the polling. So I do think we have to be clear that there is a difference between somebody's fully transitioned, which is what the whole debate was originally about, and then this peculiar Stonewall umbrella, which seems to include so many types of people, LGBTQIA plus 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 plus, and half you know half the people who go onto Q are apparently heterosexual, and so yeah. goes on. I mean, to be honest, you look at the umbrella. There's about two straight guys in white straight guys in Reading who don't fit under it. You know what I mean? It, it's quite peculiar. So I think you have to make that distinction. That's number one. I have two trans friends, two trans women. I'm laughing because they're both very funny people. And I once asked one of them whether they were lesbians. And she said she's Glaswegian. She said, well, well, that's a very interesting question. <laughs> and I, what I loved about it was that it was a very funny answer, but it was an answer. It was a knowing answer. It was a, it was a knowing answer. And when yeah. she puts pictures, she put pictures on international uh, trans Remembrance Day, whatever it was, the other, it's always International Something Day, isn't it? What I always think of International Veruca Week, which comes <laughs> back and back and back, you know. <laughs> but uh, she put pictures up, which were two of her pictures of her as a boy and then as a 17 year old. And then a ghastly picture of her in the 80s with curly, a dreadful perm and a sort of puff shoulder dress. And then a really rather lovely picture of her as, as a sort of rather elegant 50 year old as she is now. My point being is she told a story. Yeah. And her story is that she's a trans woman. Yeah. And there's a real glory and richness in that story. And that's the stories, that's the story that I kind of really want to, people to tell. So the idea of saying, I'm a woman, when actually you're not, you're a trans woman, seems to me to be peculiarly denying your own story and the richness of your own story. Now, there is like a rather roundabout in that sort of way is that the idea of the way in which women see men is is trained and becomes instinctive it's not about genitals it's about the fact that you know i fall for the male body and somebody said to me once the same thing well what would happen if you you know found a trans man attractive and you went home and then when you got undressed you discovered that he was a trans man and didn't have a penis i'd say i'd offer him tea <laughs> Because I don't want to sleep with somebody because I don't have that gut attraction. And when people yeah. used to say to me before, you know, how do you know if you're gay? I said, you don't have to think about it. You just know. You know, you're either attracted to people or you're not. And that is a physiological thing. And it's about the male body in my case or the female body if you're lesbian. So the thing that I find curious about this is why is it that trans women want to be women rather than want to be trans women? Yeah. And if somebody wants to choose to sleep with a trans woman, and they're a man or a woman. Well, you know, that's a personal choice. I mean, that's up to them. But the idea that you would say, I am now a lesbian and go on a lesbian dating site feels to me, it feels to me it's denying your reality, let alone, you know, in a sense, deceiving somebody else. So I, I, I don't, you know, rape is rape. So you can't force someone to sleep with you unless you rape them. And then that's rape. But what you can do is invade the space. Yeah. And I think if you do that thoughtlessly, then it's worth trying to be a bit more thoughtful about it. So does it erase the notion of homosexuality? Well, queer theory, as it's called, and I hate that word, but queer theory, as it's called, is designed to disrupt categories and realities through language. Mm -hmm. that, is, it's, that is what it says it thinks it can do. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to fuck up the category of women because that's what queer theory is about. It's about disruption. 
Yeah. End. It doesn't seem to me it's about building. It's yeah. just about disruption. So yes, in that sense, it, I don't think it undermines lesbians because lesbians are still lesbians. But what it does is it creates an intrusion. And that for women is offensive in many, many respects. And so I respect those people who respect those boundaries. Partly because I was be- beaten viciously and intellectually about the head by feminists when I was at university in the late 70s. And basically they said, well, who are you? What kind of man are you going to be? You know? And I was like, whoa, feminism, whoa, class, whoa, whoa, help. And it was brilliant. I was just, you know, threatened and bullied by them <laughs> for several years to great effect. And I, and I love them all dearly for doing it. You know, it was fantastic. That's very well put. And I think one of the things that's always struck me about what some trans activists say about lesbians in particular, which is, you know, why are you so afraid of a penis? Just do it. They're women. You should go with them. Is that it does echo the homophobic mm. argument that was made about lesbians in the past, which you need a good shagging. You need a guy in mm. your life. You need a penis in your life. So you, you do see those kind of arguments being rehabilitated in a slightly strange way, especially I think amongst younger generations. So for example, on TikTok and other areas of life where I have absolutely no engagement whatsoever, but vast numbers of young people do, there are those kinds of arguments being made by activists, you know, why do you judge people on the basis of their genitals? Why don't you open your mind to all sorts of things? And it can quite easily cross the line into chastising gay men and gay women for being gay in that sense. And 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 as the chief executive of Stonewall said, it's akin to racism. And I, I think that is deeply, deeply offensive because what you're saying is there's something material about being same sex attracted. There is nothing material about being a racist. That is a choice of view, and that is a different category from being, literally, being gay. I mean, if you are gay, you either are gay, you aren't, or you're bisexual, you're not, you know, one way or the other. I remember Kit Hollerback, who was married to the wonderful Jeremy Hardy once, years and years and years ago, comic, and she had this great joke, so this bloke comes up to her junk in the the tube and says, will you sleep with me? And she goes, no. And he goes, well, you a lesbian. She goes, what, are you the alternative? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But I mean, that's the point, you know yeah. what I mean? And th- there's this other thing too, you know, when you think of, of, of women, this notion, this relationship between women and men, uh, Julie Bindell has a really good answer, I think, to this idea when men say to women, oh, you can't say all men are rapists. And Julie says, yes, but the problem for women is we don't know whether it's you. Mm. Now, that's the point about these arguments is the boundaries are being crossed. So that's the point. It's about, so if you're in a refuge, I'm absolutely clear that if you're a trans person in a relationship and it's violent and you need a refuge, absolutely you need a service. Of course, no one's saying that. But what we have to balance in provision of the service is that when women, a, 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 a whole group of women say, we're in a relationship, we're d- we're threatened, it's domestic violence, we need a refuge, and we want one where there's no male people in it. They don't want that sense of the possibility of male physicality because it's that that's frightening to them. Now, it seems to me perfectly reasonable for us to respect those boundaries without describing those boundaries as a prejudice. They are, those boundaries arise because of a fear which is actually based in the material reality of life. Spiked is launching an internship programme We're offering paid placements to aspiring writers, podcasters, and video makers who want to cut their teeth at the best political magazine in the world. You'll work with us full-time for six months in London, starting this July, 
and there's the possibility of more work at the end of it. You can apply for an editorial internship where you'll help us to produce our articles, features and essays, or an audiovisual internship where you'll help us to produce our videos and podcasts like this one. To find out more and to apply, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. That's spiked-online.com forward slash interns. A very good point. And I think it comes back to the question of freedom of association. And I think what people forget is that freedom of association often necessarily involves discrimination, not prejudicial discrimination. But for example, if you have a gay men's group, that's for gay men. If you have a, a, a group for people who studied Hannah Arendt, that's a group for people who studied Hannah Arendt. I mean, you discriminate yes. against those who don't or, or if you open a music college, that's going to be people for people who are capable of playing yes. a musical instrument. And the thing is, it's not, I mean, what it's not, it, the, the intention is not the exclusion. Yeah. The intention is, that, is, is the maintenance of the boundary. And it's not the same as saying, it just is not the same as saying black people can't come into this white lavatory. Yeah. It simply is not the same as that. Yeah. Because that is about, I mean, you know, the difference between black people and white people in relation to the lavatory is zero. Yeah. Exactly. You know, exactly. Uh, if, if, if people listening won't know this, but uh, because they can't see it, but behind me on the wall is the South African Constitution, and it has a phrase in it which is the phrase "unfair discrimination." And what I love about that is yes. it's so thoughtful. It accepts that actually there is discrimination, and we yeah. do discriminate, and we make we draw these boundaries for all sorts of reasons, and that's absolutely key to the way we describe our lives. And I go back to this notion of the material reality of your physicality, your biological sex. I accept that people will want to, uh, who may be in situations of profound pain. I accept it because I know it, because the evidence is there. We read the stories. What I'm anxious about, though, is that that uh, the profoundness of that pain is experienced by relatively small people as far as I can make out. And the danger, I think, is that if you read the interim CAS report, which is the CAS report into the provision of NHS services and so on and so forth, and therapeutic services to young people particularly, if you look at that, the anxiety that she has uncovered is that actually what you need when you're experiencing that uncertainty and unease is you need the range of time and offering to explore what the cause might be yeah. and not to be driven initially. Down. So you may well say, I'm a girl, I think I'm a boy, fine. But the therapist's answer to that is to say, not to say, oh, of course. The therapist's answer to that is to say, tell me about that. Mm -hmm. Explore that pain. Let's find out what that pain's about. Let's understand what it is that's causing that pain. Let's try and find, therefore, what we think is the way in which you could help yourself and be helped. And it's that closing down of the range, I think, which is really, really worrying at the moment, because it's driven by an ideology rather than by, in that case, therapeutic practice. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, some campaigners, some very sensible campaigners are worried about a potential ban on conversion therapy, not because they want gay men or gay women to be put through that horrible process of a religious conversion, as, as has happened in some instances, but because they're worried that a therapist's right or a parent's right to say to a kid with gender dysphoria, well, let's talk about this. Let's have this discussion. Let's see if this is the right thing or not. They're worried that that will be included in the definition of conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. And then as a consequence, you won't be able to have those kind of honest 
discussions and the ideology of it all will be elevated to the, the sacred word. And again, if you go back to this idea of affirmation, what I was talking about before, this idea of the subjective, affirmation is the opposite of erasure. In other words, the idea is that one is supposed to affirm everybody's identity in the terms that they want, and that that is in and of itself what we're here to do. Well, I I mean, I'm sorry, I, I, I think that what being in relationship with people of whatever kind is about, and the profoundly human nature of our relationships is that we precisely can't know how somebody else sees the world, experiences the world, and feels about the world. But it's the joy of going on a journey to understand that in the certain knowledge that you never will. And that is the great human challenge that we'll never understand each other. It's the great human condition, Um, but it's the great human joy to try and discover it. So when people are asked to affirm, that is seems to me to be asked to give up the curiosity of the journey of understanding and somehow without any kind of critical mind or emotional critical state to simply accept what somebody says. Well, I don't accept what thing what, what somebody says without scrutiny. I don't expect anybody to accept me without scrutiny and my behaviour without scrutiny or my language or my attitudes or whatever. And I don't expect to be have it demanded of me. And there was one one video, which is a particularly annoying person who's got this thing where he talks in this very patronising manner. And he leant into the camera and he goes, I demand that you respect me. And I thought, you know the funny thing about respect? It turns out it has to be earned. Mm-hmm. I mean, people who demand respect pretty much don't get it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. That's like an angry child in the corner of the room going, I want the world, yeah. I want ice cream. <laughs> I think the um, the points you make about material reality, which gets pushed under the carpet a lot by the subjectivity of our era, that's very important. And I, one of my favourite things that you've said recently is that when you were campaigning in the 80s, you didn't go out on the streets and say, I want to be heterosexual. You went out on the streets and said, I'm a gay man. That's absolutely fine. This is what it is. And, and that's actually a very good description of some of the slightly stranger campaigning we have today, mm. if we're mm. being honest, which is that you do have a situation where even men who still look like men will say, I'm a woman and you have to recognize this and you have to use the right pronouns, despite my beard, despite my male genitalia, and if you don't, you're a bigger. And there is something about that that I do think needs confrontation hmm. and, or at least discussion. Just to say, by the way, I was, a note, I was, I was terribly bad heterosexual. I mean, <laughs> all three women that I went out with are all lesbians. Well, hello, talk about undermining <laughs> relationship there you know what i mean and i was absolutely frightful at it love women but just no way am i a satisfying sexual partner no good at that no (laughs) no it's a hopeless exercise well that that brings me on to my my final question for you which is which you've touched upon many times already but i just want to pin you down on it which is the question which i think is key to all of this which is the question of freedom of discussion Freedom of conscience, freedom of thought, and freedom of speech, and the right to say what we think. And as you've just said, that's important not only in terms of clarifying these issues. Can a man become a woman? Is it possible for someone who was born male ever to be a lesbian? I mean, those are important issues for us to talk about. But also, as you've just indicated, because 
if you just bow down and genuflect to someone's identity with no discussion or scrutiny at all, that's incredibly patronizing. That's incredibly dehumanizing in a way. I will respect you despite secretly not really thinking you are what you say you are. So <laughs> yeah. the absence of discussion, even in that sense, is is kind of problematic. So in terms of the, the cancel culture we live under, the demonization of women in particular who raise gender critical questions, uh, the approach of Stonewall, which has, has a tendency now to shout down its critics as bigots or as sexual racists, there's a real problem there, isn't there? And, and how would you make the case for having as free and robust a discussion about these things as possible? Well, firstly, forgive me for uh, mentioning a book that I wrote called The Power of Difference, um, which is available, by the way. I understand today it's £14 a penny. Amazon prices seem to go up and down at the stock exchange. I find this very peculiar. Anyway, but it's called The Power of Difference for a good reason. It's because of what I said before, this profoundly human situation in which we find ourselves that speaks to the absolutely to the profundity of our humanity. It's called The Power of Difference because of that, what I referred to before, where the notion that difference speaks to the profound nature of our humanity, this, this inability for us to understand each other. So if that is the case, then the difference between us and our ability to try and find ways of combining that difference, that is how we create the world in which we can best live. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to do that, so I spend most of my working life with companies and with organisations saying to people, look, on any subject in, in the business, you know, new product, new innovation, new whatever, you wouldn't say to somebody, I don't want to hear your point of view because yeah. of who you are. Mm. So one of the dangers of doing it in relation to sexual orientation or a particular view on race or whatever is that you shut down the expression of opinion and people in the organisation start to be wary of expressing themselves. Mm. So then we get on to, and there's a wonderful book called The Fearless Organization by somebody called Amy C. Edmondson, and she is the doyen of psychological safety. Now, this is being much misused as a concept, and she sets it right. Psychological safety is the atmosphere and the culture in which speaking out and speaking up is expected. It's not the exception. It's not sticking your head above the parapet. Saying your view is what is expected and rewarded. And dissenting from people is not, you're not faced with social isolation or, or, or in some form of discrimination by saying your view. Now, we can make rules about how we do that. We need to disagree well. And we can make rules about the language we use. We can make rules about how we do it. We also have to accept within that, and the whole point of this is that we will clash, we will upset each other, we will offend each other, and things will go wrong because we are human beings. And the way we deal with that is not to try and stop it happening because we can't stop it happening. In other words, by trying to stop people saying what they think. What we have to do is understand how to deal with it when it happens. So I use this phrase, um, which Amy, who's brilliant, by the way, it's a, such a good book. Um, she's very kind enough to say she thinks this is really clever. But what it is, is you need to create spaces that are safe for disagreement, mm. not from disagreement. Mm. So what I do with businesses is I start from this notion of difference and I get people to tell each other their different stories and discover the differences about each other. So try and move them away from, oh, we've all got so much in common, to really, really valuing the differences. And once you start that framework and you accept that there's a, that there's a poet at which you might be very seriously offended, 
or upset. But when you are, there's a two-part process to go through. When people are offended, the first thing you have to do is you have to hear that offence and you also have to hear the intention and what the person who offended it meant. They have to hear each other because if they don't, that shuts down the dialogue. Mm. So what I spend a lot of time doing is helping people to construct those spaces. Now, if you take that to the outside world, it's more difficult because in a business or an organisation, you've got a common aim. You've got, an, you've got a goal. You're sort of all there to do something. You're not at the pub. You know, you're there to do something. So there's a sense in which you say, well, that's what we're all trying to do. So what do I bring that's different from my colleagues? And how do we combine that in order to achieve this common aim? It's more difficult outside. But if you look at lesbians and gays and the minors, I remember that gig, Pits and Perverts, it was called. And it was on the day my dad died, which is why I remember it so well. It was December the 10th, 1984. Now, something wonderful happened at that gig. Um, it was a mad thing, Lesbians Gay Support the Miners. They mm. literally raised money, stuck a pin in the wall. You've seen the film. They stuck a pin in the wall and ended up going to the Dulé Valley. Bonkers. At that gig, which, by the way, in the film is a music gig, but it wasn't. It was a comedy and music gig. But anyway, by the way, uh, Di Donovan stood up. The NUM official stood up and he said, you've worn our badge. Hmm. Now we'll wear yours. What that was about was not saying we'll all wear the same badge. It was the it was hmm. the most moving anatomy of solidarity. So I suppose what we need to do is it, you know saying free speech. It's not about deliberately offending people. It's not about you know not being thoughtful or careful. I mean, don't use the N word. Don't use the Q word. Don't say women are slags. I mean, that's just. That's just unpleasant. That's yeah. not free speech. That's just rude. But if you're talking about articulating an opinion, what, what, what one needs to do is articulate it for a reason. And the reason is to understand somebody else's opinion if you're involved in a project or politics or whatever and see how you can then find some common aims around which you can uh, uh, collaborate and, and show solidarity to each other. So I've seen it in action between the most unlikely partners there. And you see it, if you think of your own relationship, you should see it in action in your own relationship. Mm. You know, how on earth do you decide whether to go to the movies if all you're going to do is be completely unilateral on either side? You can't <laughs> do it. So we need to take that anatomy, really, and in a sense talk about, I like to talk about the exchange of ideas rather than freedom of speech. But the key thing I think about freedom of speech, of course, is that speech is different from acts. Language is not violence. Yeah. Language is language yeah. and acts are acts. Now, incitement to commit an act is the link between language and the act. Mm -hmm. I accept that. But in, its, in and of itself, it is not violence. So we need to rediscover that exchange of ideas and accept that we won't agree about everything. Simon, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.